Running Light Ministry Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. You can support these podcasts by making a gift to the ministries at runninglight.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Running Light Podcast, the Better Pleasure Podcast. My name's Bo. And I'm Peter. And we are going to be on, uh, this is going to be number five nice. of the pastoral paradigm. And so we're going to pick up where we left off, and this is going to be with a quote from um, C.S. Lewis. So I just hit play on our um, video, too, so we got that going nice. as well. So people, I'm going to make it so they could see this as well. Um, so C.S. Lewis wrote uh, this, and I'll point this one towards you. <laughs> Um, so he said, a repressed desire or thought is one which has been thrust into the subconscious, usually at a very early age, and can now come before the mind only in a disguised and unrecognizable form. When an adolescent or an adult is engaged in resisting a conscious desire, he is not dealing with a repression, nor is he the least uh, danger of creating a repression. On the contrary, those who are seriously attempting chastity are more conscious and soon know a great deal more about their own sexuality than anyone else. They come to know their desires as Wellington knew Napoleon or as Sherlock Holmes knew uh, Moriarty. Moriarty. Man, I'm not a Sherlock Holmes guy. <laughs> but it says, as a what? A rat, rat catcher, catcher knows rats or a plumber knows about leaky pipes. Virtue, even attempting virtue, brings light. Indulgence brings a fog. Hmm. Cool. So we have that quote. And what is kind of the summary you think of that? Yeah, so C.S. Lewis is actually going at, uh, it's actually a direct refutation of Freud, which is interesting. So uh, Freudian psychology suggested that the main thing that's wrong with humanity is repressed sexual desires. And the way that we become liberated and more in tune with who we are is by engaging in those repressions. So uh, Freud, in other words, attacked the Christian, the Judeo-Christian sexual ethic because he said what it did is it caused unconscious repression, which caused conscious aggression as well as basically everything else that's wrong with us. So Lewis is pointing out that in a way he's agreeing with Freud, which is interesting. So most Christians, when they think about Freud, they just totally throw him out. And they say, like, oh, it's total nonsense. Like, we should be fighting these things. We should have stigma attached to various sexual behaviors, things like that. Lewis is actually acknowledging that some of Freud's premise is valid, that if you do repress desires, it does actually lead to what he observed is actually accurate. It does lead to negative, harmful, and toxic ideations within your own psyche, as well as behaviors within your own being. So uh, an example of this would be Christianity when it dealt with homosexuality. So throughout church history, the perspective of the church on homosexuality has been kind of varied, but the predominant or prevailing ideal is that if someone has a sexual urge to go after the same sex in a sensual way, they have already committed the sin of homosexuality. So having the desire in and of itself is the sin. It's not acting upon it, it's having the desire. So therefore, what that means is that if someone has the desire as a Christian, their theology won't allow them to actively fight that desire because they can't even admit that they have it. Because to admit that you have it means that you've already failed, right? So you can't even confess to it or talk about it. So what you do instead is you repress it. You trick your own mind into thinking or believing that you don't have the desire at all. This repression actually does lead to a lot of negative side effects. So uh, another interesting example that's very common for Christians is anger. So most Christians believe or have believed throughout uh, Christendom is that having the emotion of anger in and of itself means you have failed. It means that you have done something wrong. And so Christians repress their angry thoughts and desires and reframe them in their own mind in the way they communicate. So they'll say things like, well, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. Or I'm not angry, I'm indignant. Or I'm not angry, I'm passionate, right? And so they, they will deny 
the existence of the emotion because they feel ashamed towards it, but be, by denying it, they're actually giving it space to grow and become a part of their unconscious and therefore dominate their conscious behaviors in varieties of ways, including indulgence as well as uh, other ways of kind of going around it. So Lewis is acknowledging the danger of repression, but he's also saying that what Christianity is actually teaching is not a form of repression. It is an acknowledgement of the conscious desire, but a resisting of it. So it's not repressing, it's resisting. So I'm saying, I have a desire, so using the argument of the homosexual desire again, I have a desire to have sexual intimacy with other men, but I know that it's not good for me to act upon that, whether in my fantasy life or in my real life activity. So therefore, I will consciously fight that desire and move away from it. So uh, we're, we're, when we're quoting Lewis, that's what we're doing. We're trying to help Christians and pastors understand if you want to create an environment in the church that doesn't fall into the faults of repression, but also in, enables Christians to fight their active sins, you have to create an environment in which people don't feel as though they've already failed simply by having the desire, but they're given space to fight it as opposed to repress it. So um, we, we've seen this a lot, even in just pornography, right? Uh, many pastors or leaders don't feel like they have the space to even admit that they have a desire to go in these directions. So they repress it. And by repressing it, they feed it. Yeah. And maybe maybe the outcome of the pastoral repression is maybe that's where like instead of aggression, but maybe it comes out through prideful aggression. Right you know, and the way we teach the Bible. Right. And um, so it might be something where if you do have, if you find yourself struggling with pride a lot in the ministry as a pastor, mm -hmm. teaching pastor especially, you know, you might want to look at maybe things that you have repressed. Right. Meaning what are you afraid to not share about at all? Right. You know, um, and, uh, you know, what we find is most men especially when it comes to things like specifically the example you've given of homosexuality, mm -hmm. um, you know, 10 out of 10 times <laughs> men aren't going to say, Hey, you know, I think I could be homosexual. Right. That's just not going to happen. Right. They're going to say no way. Right. And, um, I'm the only pastor that I've known actually myself um, that I've ever met ever <laughs> out of all the ministers that I've met yeah. <laughs> that has ever said like that, um, that I wouldn't put shit past me right. to be bisexual or homosexual or any, you know, anything really. Right. But, um, uh, admitting that, you know, in a public, more publicly. Um, so, uh, and maybe that's why I'm not invited to too many things. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah because someone who, yeah. in other words, who someone who communicates in the terms of fighting yep. as opposed to repression will threaten the reality that someone has constructed for themselves. Right. Yeah. And this is, by the way, if you've ever wondered about the term homophobia, this is what that term means. It doesn't mean you're afraid of gay people. It means that you have unnatural aggression towards homosexuality because you are subconsciously repressing it in yourself. Um, now, is that true? Does that happen? Yes, it does. Right. So there are some people who have same sex desires and passions within themselves, but they're living in denial. And so they become overly aggressive towards that behavior in others. Um, is that true for everybody? I think now it's just been kind of used as a blanket term that anyone who doesn't, who doesn't right, like same sex right. marriage is a homophobic, uh, you know, that that's obviously pushing it way too far. Yeah. But I like in uh setting captives free in the workbook, Mike Cleveland, who wrote it, he talks about a sermon that he gave after he indulged in porn the night before. And he's like, I, he had this great line where he's like, I gave an amount of fire and passion in that sermon that could have only come from a guilty conscience. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It's so true though, right? Right. Yeah, so true. So in order to fight our sin, we need self-control. Uh, we can only have self-control if we admit to having desires that need to be controlled. Right. 
So this is something that you've talked about a lot, this kind of idea is that the fruit of the spirit, one of them is self-control. Right. <laughs> and so obviously that begs the question. Right. What are you controlling? Right. What are you controlling? Well, we have to be resisting something. Right. So therefore, it shouldn't be odd for us as pastors to be able to share what we resist. Right. Uh, more specifically. Right. You know, and um, and not just so general. Right. You know, like, oh, I, I resisted that donut. You yeah. know, or, you know, <laughs> Even that is a bridge too far for a lot of pastors, <laughs> man. <laughs> like, yeah. And so it, we say not near, merely uh, by putting up generalized boundaries and pretending that we don't have these desires at all, right. which happens a lot. But if we don't ever fight our sin, we'll never understand it. We will blame others for our issues, and we will be ill-equipped to deal with our struggles. Um, and this happens quite a bit, right, in people. Right. Um, so, um, and it says, we could actually be totally blinded to the depth of our depravity. It happened to the religious leaders in Jesus' time. Mm. So we don't want to uh, minimize this kind of idea of repression versus resistance right and being clear of what we resist right and um and being open about fighting our sin right uh, right uh so you know i think we we kind of uh sometimes bag on the pharisees but we don't realize that we potentially are becoming them becoming them yeah. yeah and that's kind of the uh the brilliant so the way that it was originally worded is actually very good. I think some people are taking it in a bad way. But um, the tenet within Alcoholics Anonymous that you proclaim yourself to be an alcoholic whenever you come into the meeting. So the way that some people have taken that today is they've taken it as kind of like I have this incurable disease and it's not really my fault. I'm an alcoholic, so I have these desires and urges and it's just not on me. Right. But the way it was originally intended was no – you have a strong, like I'm admitting that I have a strong, irresistible urge to indulge in alcohol, right? I cannot utilize alcohol with self-control. That's something that is beyond my strength and my willpower to do. So by acknowledging my status as an alcoholic, what I'm saying is, is that in order for me to resist that urge, I have to take steps to push myself away from that substance more than the average person has to, right? So the average person might be able to have a beer or a glass of wine at the end of night and not be bothered by it. But I recognize in myself that I can't do that. In order for me to consciously resist, I have to be able to understand what I'm resisting. So the problem with most alcoholics is that they're in denial. They can't admit to that, right? They're just like, oh, you know, I get, what's the classic alcoholic line? I could quit whenever I want, you know, right. like I just, I like to have fun sometimes, you know, and it's just like, I, so I have a few too many, you do too, you know, no big deal until they could get to the place where they're recognizing like, no, there's, there's a real problem in my nature. I have an urge that in order for me to actively fight it, I have to acknowledge that it's there. Right. And so it, various types of sexual depravity, we have to think about this as well. So me and Bo have actually done podcasts on, say, uh, pedophilia, where it's like, what if you have someone that has active desires to have sex with minors, people who are younger than they should? Uh, is that something that's totally abnormal? And we talked about it historically. No, pedophilia is actually pretty common throughout the world, even to this day. But if you have someone that has the active urge, it's probably not the best idea to put that person in a place where they're having a lot of time with kids. You know, like you probably want to separate them from the children's ministry or something like that. So you have to be aware of what you're resisting so that you can put up the appropriate boundaries. Yeah, totally. And this is what is kind of frightening speech within a church culture, right? Right. Is like sharing anything like this. Right. Like what? No way, you know, and it's not just church culture. Mm. I mean, you share, you know, in a, any corporate setting, right? Probably uh, in any open way, mm. it can become really difficult, yeah. You know, to uh, to navigate, and you you could potentially lose a position or something, right? You know, because of of these things. Um, 
so, but by leading by example, and the pastor is called to be an example, you know, in all things. And, and, uh, and so we are called to be an example of this kind of confession kind of life. Right. And uh, this kind of openness. Uh, again, we've always stressed not so uh, specific, but at least general. Right. And, you know, if it's a sem- sensitive topic, uh, just, you know, make sure that, you know, I think you're sharing at least with your leaders, your right. leadership team. Right. And at least they know. Right. And uh, and and then, you know, that heart will also it'll probably be translated into your sermons as well. Absolutely. You know, if you if you're developing that kind of thing. So um, that was that's a big, big part of this um, kind of uh, part of the the presentation that we got going on. And some people will have objections to this, and one of them is, but I don't want to be let there to be a hint of sexual immorality. Mm-hmm. So some people say that, and so you know, because they don't want there to be a hint of sexual immorality, they don't want to share anything, right? Because you know, hey, we shouldn't talk about it, right? You know, we shouldn't. I don't want there to be a hint of sexual immorality, right? And so, you know, I'm not going to share anything. Right. Like that's just between me, right? You know, and whatever. Um, that kind of idea, right? And uh, this this passage comes up quite a bit in the book of Timothy. Mm. Um, Let there not be a hint of sexual immorality, um, and so we can only kind of talk so much about uh, intimate things, right? Right. So, uh, again, quoting Lewis, he said, you know, the devil always works in pairs. So uh, we need to be careful that by avoiding one obstacle, we're not falling into another. And then there's a great scene in the book pilgrim's Pro- progress by john bunyan yeah where christian you know it's a kind of metaphor of the christian life it is a metaphor, and uh <laughs> it's, it's a really good metaphor too you yeah. know and it's and he's on the dangerous journey and he's uh going there's this one part where he's walking this narrow path and on one side is the marsh of despondency and on the other side are the cliffs of despair and i love that that scene i love that uh, just that image where he's trying to stay on the path. And if he goes too far left, he'll go into the marsh. If he goes too far right, he'll fall off the cliff. This is one of those areas where by someone acknowledging the pit, they're devaluing or dismissing the existence of the marsh, right? So they are acknowledging like, hey, if we, if I sit up in front of people and I share in a gratuitous fashion the struggles that I carry, will that incite other people to lust? Well, possibly. Right. So if I struggle with various types of sexual dysfunction and I'm sharing them and let's say some of them take place in my bedroom, things that happen between me and my wife. And I start sharing in a gratuitous sense what is going on in my bedroom. Will that be potentially stumbling to people who are listening? Well, yeah. But does that mean, therefore, you should never share? The answer is no. You need to find that middle ground, that middle path. Right. So if you say, well, I don't want there to be a hint of sexual morality. Once again, that's assuming that by not expressing it or acknowledging that it's there, it goes away. But we've already talked about how repression actually makes things worse. Right. It develops new problems that weren't there before, but it also insinuates and grows the old problems. This is why there was a great article came out years ago called uh, I think it's called the Red Light District Porn and religion. Mm-hmm. And it talks about how the highest rates of porn usage are in the most religious communities. Right? Right. So it's like, uh, obviously repression ain't working that good for these religious communities, because if it worked so good, why are they using it so much? Right. Right. They're, they're using it because it's it growing. Didn't work for the popes back in the day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, it's ironic that sometimes Christians are using porn, meaning people who feel ashamed at viewing porn are engaging in it more than people that feel no shame with doing it. That's interesting, right? And it shows that once again, repression could actually have an adverse effect on someone's ability to fight sin. So yes, I need to be very conscious of what I'm sharing and who I'm sharing it with, right? What kind of, what level of detail is appropriate when I'm talking to the congregation versus what level of detail is appropriate when I'm talking with a male accountability partner, those are two different things, right? right. So I have to use a lot of wisdom when it comes to how much to share and when to share it. But that doesn't mean 
because there's a potential danger. Therefore, I should never talk about it. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, sometimes people use these passages, too, um, in ways that um, they, I think people sometimes miss that the scripture, of course, is going to say, let there not be a hint of sexual right. immorality. <laughs> right. right. What else would it say? Let there be only a little bit. That's right. <laughs> sexual and so morality. I always try to point this out to people is that what like when they say, well, let, let, let there not be a hint of sexual immorality. Bo, like what are you well what do you think it's gonna say right like what you know of course it's going to have the ideal right that is what the Holy Spirit I imagine is going to put forth right is the perfect right and the perfect is let there not be a hint of sexual immorality do right. I agree with that absolutely right wholeheartedly let there not be even a hint of sexual immorality in your life right great love it you know, can I do it? I find lacking. Mm. I find there's a lack there. Right. You know, if I do good in the physical way, I find that my mind. And then I find, you know, maybe my mind's pretty good, but maybe I find another part of me that has gone astray. Mm. Um, and so I think if people get honest, they'll see that as well. But yeah, we shouldn't be surprised by the high standard of scripture. Right. And, and that certainly is no reason to not share with someone um, and uh, ha let some vulnerability um, come out of your, your language right. when you're sharing. So again, um, this is, um, so in, when someone's saying, hey, let there not be hint of sexual immorality, and they have that as a rebuttal, you know, like, hey, we shouldn't talk about this stuff. It sh we should just set it aside, repress mm -hmm. it, you know. Does this position come from a place of vulnerability or a morally strong one? Mm -hmm. And usually it comes from a morally strong one. Right. Right, where someone is communicating to people that they are morally strong. Right. And what we mean by that is that the person doesn't have any issue mm. with fulfilling the scripture, you know, to the dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's, mm. that they got it down. Right. You know, right? Right. I was actually, it's funny, I'm, I'm reading uh, sections from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And it's so funny where it's like so much of what I read in there, I'm like, yes. And then they go just a little too far. <laughs> like I'm reading, uh, I was reading the sacrament of penance and confession. And there's so much in that where I'm like, I'm agreeing with like 90% of what they're saying. But then they're like, and this is what enables us to have grace from God. I'm like, uh, you went a little too far. <laughs> but the beautiful thing about it is like in the sacrament of confession and penance, I I'm quoting this off the top of my head, so I, uh, I can't be sure if I'm exactly accurate about this, but it's something like this. I'm not too off. I think it's once a month faithful Catholics have to confess. And I love that because the idea is like you have something to confess to. It's been a month. You've done definitely, something wrong. You got, you got something going wrong no in your way, life. No way, bro. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that because you could see when they created that in their church, it was this. it started with a very beautiful thing of like, Wow, you know, confess your trespass to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. James 5.16, Jesus taught us how to pray. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. And the catechism is, by the way, quoting all these passages. And it's saying, like, because of this, we have an assumption that sin is alive and well in the life of the believer. And therefore, he needs an outlet to come and confess and deal with wrong within his life. And to not only acknowledge it, but to seek help in his various struggles against sin. So it's really, really good. But then, like I said, it goes a little too far and is like, well, this is actually what forgives you before yeah, God. Yeah, this is the door, yeah. the key <laughs> yeah. of grace. Yeah, and you're like, ah, yeah. no, that, that's not Instead true. Instead of but, reversing it and yeah. saying, you know, how grace looks in your life right. is your confession. Exactly. You know? Exactly. That so. perhaps it's the grace of God that allows us to confess. That's right. Within the church. So like you said, the, the absolute ideal is that we don't sin at all. But is there an ideal in fallenness? And that's kind of an interesting 
question. And, you know, Jesus hints at this and the writer of Hebrews, I think, hits at it even better. Right. Where he talks about he's, you know, most of the book of Hebrews is like, yeah, the Old Testament, Jesus is just better. Right. That's the majority of it. But there's one section where he actually claims that the old covenant is superior to Jesus. And the one way where he says it's superior is because when we approach a priest that also has to confess of sin, it gives us an ideal of how to deal with sin. And Jesus can't present that to us because he's perfect. He's without sin. And I love that section because it's so cool when it presents that, where it's like, is there a high ideal of no sin? Yes. But is there an ideal that exists within sin? And the answer is also yes, and we can't miss that. So some Christians just think, well, because the Bible says there shouldn't be a hint of sexual immorality, therefore that's what we should strive for. And anything beneath that is just a total failure. There's no grace. We've just screwed up, and we need to repent and do better. But it's like, well, no, there's, there's a grace within that in which you can actually have an ideal of confession, accountability, and repentance in failure that promotes godly living. Yeah, you know, being being within the the covenant. You think of Israel and having the tabernacle and it's it was assumed that they would were going to sin. Mm. Hence the sacrificial system which meant to obviously draw near. The offering meant to draw near. That's what it literally means, right? right? And and then it's it's neat too because you know there was different offerings but they all were presented like if someone brought a sin offering they would pre- present present a sin offering a guilt offering and then they would present a peace offering or a burn offering then they would present a peace offering and they would eat a meal right. basically with god right and but it was it wasn't it wasn't there wasn't this like idea of like, okay, now he's totally never going to sin. Right. Again. <laughs> you know, it's like it, but he was in this, like this movement, you know, and that's what I think is really important of what the Catholic church was trying to right. um, uh, duplicate. Right. Is that idea of just as Israel, if you were a person in Israel and you were in the covenant, you were perpetually going to offer sacrifices mm. to the Lord. And and that's what kept you within the co- you were in the covenant, mm. you know. It was an action that showed that you were in, you were being cleansed. There was a sanctifying work right. that was going on in your life, a cleansing work. So it didn't have to do with you being sinless. Right. It had to do with you being a part of the the system. Right. You know, and and that's what is important to us. We can't walk away and go, oh well. You know, I'm not going to have a hint of sexual immorality. Absolutely not. Boom. And then I'm never going to. Yeah. And and if someone asks you, hey, do you have sexual immorality in your life? Of course not. Yeah. You know, not a hint, not yeah. a hint, not a hint. And it, it's not that. But you go, you know what? I do. Right. And I confess that. Right. To my brothers. And I confess that to the Lord. Yeah. And you are perpetually under the sacrifice, hmm. you know, of Christ. And. Um, cause if you weren't, then Jesus's sacrifice would, you know, not really have dealt with your future sin. Right. You know? Um, and of course, you know, then we have some real big problems, right? With the scriptures. Right. You know, I can think of the book of first John that, you know, Hey, I write this so that you do not sin, but if anybody does sin, right. We have an advocate, right? right. Yeah. So, um, does this position encourage us, meaning have that, having that strong position of, hey, man, I don't have any hint of sexual immorality, does it promote us to fight sin or to repress it? Right, and the answer is obviously to repress it, because if I can't have a hint, then if it exists inside of my mind, I have to deny its existence. That's right. right. I can't deal with it, its existence at all, to any level, because I've already conditioned myself to believe there's only one way this is going to work, and that is if it doesn't exist at all. That's right. And so then you repress it. And so what does this position affirm to a congregation? And this is kind of where we're driving this, right? Right. Where, what does it tell? What is that strong position, that, quote, morally strong position? What does it affirm mm. to the congregation? Right. So to, to those who are, you know, and, and me and you have talked about this quite a bit on this podcast, but they've done studies on this kind of communication, how it affects people. And. So with any speech, so if I'm talking about sexual issues, you could break the congregation into three distinct parts. 
the first part would be people who are already doing it, right? So they're already engaging in sexual immorality, whether it's they're viewing pornography, they're cheating on their wife, they're cheating on their husband, they're having sex outside of marriage. They touch themselves. Right, they, they masturbate, they're, you know, yeah. like struggling with same-sex attraction. They like to watch a show that 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 they tend to be sexually aroused by. Exactly, exactly. So to that part of the congregation, when I speak in this manner, essentially what it does is it condemns the behavior without giving a path of repentance. So it's saying just by dint of you doing it, you are outside of grace and there's really no hope for you, right? That's essentially what I'm communicating. Because if I say there shouldn't be a hint of sexual immorality and I just stop there, someone who already has a little more than a hint of sexual immorality <laughs> going on in their life, they'll be like, oh gosh, like I guess I'm, I guess I'm screwed. Like I do have a hint of sex. There's nothing I can do about this. I guess I'm just outside of the grace of God. But then in the second category are people who you'd call like maybe curious. So maybe like younger people in the congregation. They haven't really engaged in anything physical yet, but they're thinking about it. Their mind's all over the right? place. Right, their mind's all over the place. So when I say there shouldn't be a hint, I could then divide that group into two categories. One will be repelled by what I'm saying. The other will be incited to curiosity by what I'm saying. So when I say, this is what Paul says, when the law said, don't covet, it filled me with covetous desires, right? So by saying, don't even let there be a hint, but not giving any positive ways that they ought to live or how they should pursue God or what they should do if they are falling to it, all it does is it actually incites a desire to seek it out because now I'm curious about it, right? The other group of people, they're going to be repelled by it. They'll be like, oh my gosh, I don't want to hint. And that brings them into the third category. And that is people that aren't outwardly acting upon sexual immorality. And therefore it promotes in them a sense of legalistic superiority, mm. right? That's right. All those people out there that have sexual immorality in their life, but I don't. Right. Right. Yeah. And you could see how what you're talking about is so important because it really answers a lot of questions i think of like josh mcdowell's book uh on uh the last christian generation or something like that mm -hmm. um but um he you know he talks about why people leave the church and a lot of people think people leave the church because you know the church just doesn't have good apologetic answers all the time right and that is one perspective of it right and there is some merit to that right um but there are other reasons why um, people, you know, have left the church. Mm. And I think when you're looking at younger people, like why younger people leave the church, I think a lot of people, it's because of what you're talking about, mm. you know, these struggles. I think a lot for a lot of people, this is the deal, you know, is that they they look at it and it's not that it's not that someone doesn't have great answers to hard questions. Mm. They go, oh, that's great, but they just simply you can't be, you can't be on a baseball team, you know, if you're not allowed, you know, to practice. Right. You know, you're just you can't do it. Right. You know, if you go to practice and you just sit on a bench, you know, and that's it, and you're not, you're kind of not in the game at all. You're not able to just get out there and do it and learn and grow and 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 you know there's no ability to make mistakes and make errors and flop and then you're you're obviously not going to play right you know you're just going to give up and just be like hmm you know i can't be a part of that that crew right and i think a lot i think if you look at most young people and ask them why do you leave the church that's it right it's just that there's no way i'm going to ever be like them right you know and that's sad, right? You know, um, uh, that's a bummer when people think that way, um, and because there's something that we're communicating that's so wrong, hmm. um, you know, um, and uh, it's it's super sad. Uh, you know, we need to be able to communicate much better to a congregation, um, so when people are listening to us, they're able to go oh, this person needs Jesus just like me, and he's working on his stuff just like me, right. and he's in the same game, and he's 
you know, he's practicing as well. And he's, you know, he's working on it too. That kind of thing. Because if not, you know, no, just no kid's going to want to stick with it. Mm. And, um, and, and that's tough. And we have to, and that means there is that level of, um, and, and people don't like this, but there's a level of patience mm. that is needed. And even long suffering, right? Even bearing under, right? You know, that needs to happen, you know, in the ministry. Um, so, but we're talking about communicating. And so we see that that per, uh, position, strong position, really has an, a major effect. Mm. And I would go so far to say most of the issues that you see with the church, um, any problems have to do with this. Mm. Like, um, even like, say, take a current situation, uh, fairly current, the Ravi Zacharias issue. You know, my question always is, you know, what was his stance? Like, did he have a strong moral stance? The answer is yeah. You know, did he always stick with a really strong moral stance? Yes. Did he show a lot of vulnerability in his talks? No. You know, who is he around? You know, what kind of people was he around? I don't know. You know, um, you know, but he, you know, we see a, a, there a leader who took a really strong moral stance and wasn't vulnerable and yet had so many things going on. Mm. You know, he couldn't seem to behavioral equate, like in his mind, like when he was teaching, like be able to think like, hey, I'm just like the person I'm talking about. Mm. You know, like there's no difference between me and that atheist out there. Right. You know, who's doing his thing. Right. You know, and and he had great intellectual arguments for why you should believe in God, why the atheist is wrong. Right. On many stances. Right. You know, but he couldn't seem to put himself in on the same par. On and, the, and the crazier thing is that he had great intellectual arguments for why we should <laughs> live in the Christian ethic. Right. We, why right. we shouldn't cheat on our wives like he had marriage books like he yeah. he promoted marriage books he promoted monogamy he promoted all these various things and he wasn't living it so it's like you could have all the intellectual arguments in the world for why you should believe in god and why you should behave in the way that god prescribes for us it doesn't mean you'll do it yeah it just means that you know why yeah and this is something we have to understand from the bible right and we always just have to remember solomon didn't do it right you know, he, you know, the wisest man who ever lived. I right. hear that all the time. Right. And, and first of all, that's wrong. Right. Uh, Jesus is the wisest right. person who ever Greater lived. Greater than Solomon is here. Yeah. <laughs> right. But Solomon was the wisest descendant of Adam. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Pure man. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And, and, and even he failed. Right. So, you know, Robbie just couldn't, you know, it seems like, you know, there comes a time where a lot of us aren't able to in our judgment of sin, in our wanting to condemn sin, right? Um, we can't seem to put ourselves in the place of condemnation, right? You know, we can't we can't seem to admit that we are talking about ourselves, right? Like when we condemn the world, we are are condemning us too, right? You know, <laughs> I love uh, in mere Christianity. There's this, there's a great uh, section where C.S. Lewis is having like a mock debate with an atheist when he's talking about the teachings of Christ and Christian ethics. And the atheist would say like the, the mock debate, the, the fake guy would say to him like, okay, you know, CS Lewis, like I get it. You're saying that Jesus had these great ethical teachings, but why do we got to listen to Jesus? Why not listen to Confucius? Why not listen to Aristotle? Why not listen to, and you know, you quote Marcus Aurelius or any of these other great moral teachers. Why Jesus? And he says, yeah, we'd be a lot better off if you listened to any of them. The problem is, is that we don't. Right? The problem is that nobody <laughs> listens to the, what these guys say about ethics. We fail to do it. So we need to find the one moral teacher who not only taught the ideal, but also lived it and then died for those who can't. Right. Those three aspects of Jesus's ministry are all necessary. If all he did was teach ethical things, then, yeah, he's a dime a dozen. Right. There are a bunch of those. And some of them are good. Some of them are better. Some of them are best. Right. So who cares? But if the message of Jesus is 
yeah, you should live this way, but you don't. So you need forgiveness. Then his message has efficacy for the, for the sinner. Yeah. And that's his point. So what are different ways you can communicate a heart for sexual purity while also showing vulnerability? So that's kind of what we want people to work on is what are ways you can communicate, right? A heart for sexual purity, meaning no hint of sexual immorality, mm. you know, the strong moral position and stance that we take as Christians, mm. um, but, but also showing vulnerability. Right. Also being able to show like, hey, you know, I am not perfect in my sexual morality as well. Right. So maybe when I'm talking about that, you know, current, you know, hot button topic mm. that's in our culture, transgenderism, that's right. one in our, our culture, right? right? So when you're talking about that from the pulpit or you mention that from the pulpit, you know, maybe you need to share that you too fall you you do not live a perfect sexual ethic right before a holy god right and maybe that's all you need to say right is just like you know as i talk about this i just want you congregation to realize right that we are not saved right by a perfect sexual conduct right we are saved by grace through right. faith right not of works you know that i too fail and that could be it right but thing is 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 you might get that person who is transgender that's at your uh even though we don't like that term so much transgender but you, you guys understand what i mean by that right um but you might have that person in your fellowship who's listening that goes oh i get that like, yeah, it's no doubt that I've failed the sexual Christian sexual ethic. Right. But I can listen to this person because they're saying they do too. Right. That's kind of that <laughs> that middle ground that we're talking about. So yeah. I was talking to my wife about this the other day where we were watching like an older show. You know, when I say older, I mean a show that came out in the early 90s. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, it's older for, for us nowadays. And there is such a Dry, the, there's such a stark contrast towards media that was produced in the 80s and the 90s versus today, where in the 80s and the 90s, you know, there is a little bit more grittiness to it. Obviously, if you watch like Leave it to Beaver or something like that, it's like the total idealized family life where there's no tension whatsoever. But even in the 80s and 90s, when you watch sitcoms from there, it's still very idealized. But now sitcoms today they're very messy, right? People are getting divorced. There's issues within relationships. There's adultery. There's affairs, right? There's a lot of messiness. A lot of within... young people that have multiple relations. Right. Like... Polyamory is, yeah, is very present. Like, there's a lot of wow. very in interesting issues within modern day television. And what I told my wife is like, well, the mistake that was made earlier on is that they presented the ideal, which is good. That's what art does, right? Art enables us to be able to fictionalize what the ideal is, right? Present people who are living out a life that we know we ought to, but also know that we're not, right? So there is a good to art when it does that. But the mistake that we make today is like, people were like, oh, well, no one lives that way. And so I just feel ashamed because I don't live that way. And therefore this art makes me feel bad. And so let's just create art where everybody's a mess like me. Right. Byzantine right? art was horrible. It had right. all this tempura, you know, colors on it. It was really bright and yeah. beautiful and everything like that. Yeah. But it really made my stick figure look pretty lame. <laughs> so I really loved, <laughs> I really loved the more. <laughs> Andy Warhol. <laughs> you know, the Jackson Pollock. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that true? Where yeah. You, now I, I just like the stick stick figure art, you know. <laughs> yeah, when I look at it like a Jackson Pollock, which is basically just you know throwing paint <laughs> yeah. on a canvas, it doesn't make me feel too bad about my stick figure. <laughs> but yeah, if I look at someone like Rembrandt or someone, I'd be right. like, oh gosh, I I'm terrible, you know. That's right. Uh, even a lot of music today, you know, when you listen to it, you're just like, oh, you know, like I could probably do that. You know? yeah. like, it's not very impressive. And the thing is, is most <laughs> yeah. most of the music, right, is yeah. simply done by someone who has no musical talent as far as understanding what the right. notes are or different rhythm structures right uh things like that but their they computer just, program is more sophisticated than they are that's right they're know, just they're... they're able to put things together and they have a good ear right and uh so like 
art does present us with uh, an ideal that we ought to live unto. And so like when we throw out the ideal though, in order to throw out shame, we've actually done ourselves a disservice. So what you're seeing today is because the church, which is not art, right? The church is supposed to be real, right? The church tried to present a visage of perfection and it chased away many people from the church. So what you're seeing is now people are like, well, I just wanna be real. You know, so if you talk to the average young person and you say, do you believe in God? They will say yes, right? Atheism is still the minority position within our country, but by far, by far, but they're still not a member of a church. Why? Because they're like, well, the church is fake. So what they've done is they've been like, yeah, well, I'm a Christian, but I just live out. There is no ideal of ethics, though. Yeah, it's just you just live how you live and so, then God forgives you. So it's interesting. It's it's how we teach. Right. And this is what we're trying to get at. It's the problem over the last hundred years is how we're teaching. Right. It's we are somehow communicating in our teaching of Bible studies that that we do it. Right. That we have achieved it. Right. And that Paul achieved it. Right. Timothy achieved it. Right. Peter achieved it. We're somehow missing you know, this balance between the ideal, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the real, mm. and being needing to be saved by grace and sanctified by grace. Right. And so this, and and probably over the last 70 years, it's dominated more. Right. You know, in, in Christendom, I would say, in the church. But so this is what we're trying to get at. And the last thing is um, St. Augustine, which... He didn't get this, by the way. <laughs> didn't get this very well at all. <laughs> he but said he, it, though, which is good. Yeah, and this is a yeah. great example. Complete abstinence is easier than per- perfect moderation. Mm. And and uh, so complete abstinence is easier than perfect moderation. And so we see that that is a great quote in what we're talking about, mm. this idea of this balance, right, um, where it's hard to have this moderation moderation right you know where you're having to discern and you're having to think and you're having to be vulnerable but not get graphic and right. all, all those things it's much more difficult to do that than just to say nope i'm right. not gonna talk about it you know um, and it's also like he produces another danger to this ideology so uh before augustine augustine was in many ways a devotee to a guy named origin yeah origin castrated himself in order to deal with the sexual urge so i'm not saying that there are a lot of people castrating themselves out there but it's like if i wanted to fight the sexual urge more effectively wouldn't it be easier just to be celibate wouldn't it be easier to just never engage with my sexual urges at all right and that's what augustine is saying he's saying some people opt out of life itself because abstaining from all pleasure is easier than moderating pleasure, right? It's easier to be the stoic. It's easier to just say, you know what? I'm just never going to eat anything pleasurable because I don't want to become a glutton than it is to eat pleasurable food and put it in its proper place. Be moderate in your eating habits. Yeah. And for those that don't know where Augustine failed in this is in his own quote is that he ended up having to castrate himself. Right. <laughs> and so he chose the path of he liked the ladies a little too much. <laughs> right. So and he, he could cho- never control. And it. he chose yeah. that easier path right. of, of abstinence through surgery. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, which is very interesting. And it just kind of hit me, Peter, that, that, you know, sexual surgery is not something new. Yeah. And yeah. and it is, there are reasons, you know, why people don't want a penis. So there's pe- people that don't want a vagina. Mm-hmm. There's probably a, a plethora of reasons, mm-hmm. uh, you know. But, you know, St. Augustine did not want a penis. Right. And Origen did not want one at, at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and when you, and, and so... That's where we have to be able to share that. Right. We have to be able to say, hey, you know, I can't, we can't have that attitude of like, 
oh man, you're cutting off your penis. Right. Like you what hor horrible people. Yeah, well, half of the Christian writers seem <laughs> like they did too. You know, That's back right. in the day. That's right. You know, they did it for different reasons. Right. But aren't they both wrong? Right. You know? Yeah, me and Bo were talking about this a little before the podcast where the, the idea of beauty has gone out of vogue within Christendom. And it's kind of waxed and waned throughout church history. But now I think we're at, again, an all-time low when it comes to our perspective of beauty. Because, again, what's, the, what's wrong with the sexual urge? Is it the urge in and of itself, or is it its misuse? Mm -hmm. And it's much simpler to create a doctrine in which the urge in and of itself is wrong than to say, no, the urge is correct, but it can be misused. It's, it could be misappropriated. Yeah, it's distorted. That's right. So it's like there are, again, Christians who cut themselves off from pleasure because they don't see it as a good, right? And throughout Christendom, there have been many, many church fathers, including Augustine, who talk about sex as a necessary evil. It's like, well, you know, like God doesn't like it. Right. But without it, we're going to die out as a species. So kind of close your eyes, do your thing. Yeah. And, and, we, have ha kids. and we have done podcasts in, the, you could check out our podcast on uh, the fathers. Right. And sex, I think it is, or something like that. Right. Church fathers and sexuality or something like that. Right. Yeah. So anyway, we're going to stop there because we already went pretty long on this section and we'll do part six later on. So thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Check out runninglight.org to begin our two video series, Take Flight and Love or Lust. You can also send us questions on Twitter at Running Light or on our runninglight.org podcast page. Like us on Facebook at Running Light Ministries, Psalm 36.8. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. Whoa!